Welcome to another summoning of the Chasing the Dragon Gaming Podcast. This is now our 13th summoning. I'm your host, Ryan. I'm Andres. Hello. We have a guest interview, and it's going to be fantastic. Today we have Christer Heglund, who is a game designer here in Stockholm, Sweden. And uh, we're going to talk about designing board games today. Not to be confused with Stockholm, New Jersey. I don't know. There, you know, there is, there's a bunch of Stockholms in the United States. I'm just joking. Edit that out. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> Why did you start designing board games? Well, I have designed games before, actually, on the good old Amiga back in the days. Uh, so uh, gaming has been a huge interest in my whole life. That and sports. <laughs> Um, so it's not new for me. The only thing would be that I've been uh, illustrating games quite a lot uh, for some American companies, and then I realized that I really wanted to get into designing games myself too, because it's like awesome and super. What games have you designed so far? Uh, Gold Raiders, a simple card game, uh, Under Blood Red Skies, a more complicated, chaotic uh, political game. And then Space Yogurt uh, Family Game. So it's quite diverse. Yeah, looking at the art on the boxes here, you can you can really see. And now I'm not judging these um, by their covers, by their boxes, <laughs> but uh, you can really see that the, the the graphic design is. You can kind of guess what target audience they're they're for. Did you did you do all the art for yeah, them? Yeah, I did. That's cool. So that's kind of an unusual thing, isn't it? I don't. I'm not certain. Probably not. But Mike Menzel, he does. Yeah, yeah. He does his own art and design. Yeah. I think so, it's so very much up to the creator. But, but okay. So, but if you if you look at most of the games that you own, do you own any games that the artist was also the designer? Mm, there has to be some of them. Cards against humanity. <laughs> yeah, we have. Thank you. My point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, that's, that, that's because I don't actually want. Um, what was it? Legends of Andor. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Otherwise, that was that's that's a case where it's an artist and a designer. Okay. Yeah. Um, I just I just think it, it could be interesting because um, part of the concept behind a game and the uh, the experience of playing a game, a lot of that has to do with the graphic design and the art. So uh, maybe we ask a, this first question: Is how do you make a game replayable? And also, as a player, what makes a game replayable for you? I think the first of all, you have to find the perfect or a very good lens for your game. And the lens is mostly that you have a focus, say, that who is the target audience for this game. Um, because you can make a mechanic that is really, really attractive to maybe mass markets. But you put a theme that is really, really specialist game, maybe too heavy. That means that the theme is probably selling. But as it's a more mass market game, you miss your targets. And then it probably won't be replayable in that way. Uh, because I, we have a huge discussion with my friends who are also designing games about making a game that is actually is replayable because you don't want to have something that is just sitting there in the shelf like the main um, focus should be that people want to play it again and again and again to enjoy it can you say let's say let's take your game Space Yogurt yeah. which is you said a family game yeah How, what, what are some, some things that you specifically 
designed in here? What mechanics did you design that you thought, well, this is going to make this game replayable? Well, first of all, I was like the, this, the look of the game. Uh, funny characters, uh, quite a simplistic uh, look of the game, uh, kind of uh, kid-friendly. And the mechanics itself are quite simple. Uh, you still have some kind of strategic to it, but it's mainly a kind of simple game. Uh, and that means that mostly it, like people who are not super interested in a very complicated game will definitely go for this one. Uh, and what I, all the game testing we made has also made that people are re replaying it quite often. So It's also very fast. Yes, definitely. Have uh, you found that it, it does take 20 minutes? Yeah. Or it's actually variable. Sometimes people actually finish in five minutes. That's very rare, but it, it's about 20 minutes. Uh, in the beginning, it took about 40 minutes. Uh, it was too, too much too long for a family game, so we had to scale it down quite a lot. And a lot of mechanics have been chucked out. <laughs> and I'm, I'm, that's also a really big thing is that, especially if you make a game that is for specialists and you have a target audience that are around 25, 30, 40. Uh, or you have like your playtesting with kids. It's a huge difference. This says that it plays from five years and up. Yeah. How do you do? How do you do that? I mean, five-year-old kid. Um, they can't really read yet. They can kind of read, you know, but yeah. it's not like they can't read. I don't think they would be able to read rules and understand them and interpret them. That's yeah. one thing. So, so it's meant for kids to at least initially to play with parents. Or, yeah, that's why it's a family game and not a kids game. Uh, what I realized when we playtested is that I played with players who were around three or four, and they had a problem with the concept of losing, actually. <laughs> so there were a lot about people crying and being upset, and so we just raised the age a little, little bit, and then it worked really, really fine. Uh, and that's actually been a really good experience, too. Uh, and also... The best thing with playtesting with kids is that they are very, very honest. The feedback you get is like straight on, <laughs> and I love that. What was the What was the harshest thing a five year old said to you? Uh, I don't think I can mention that on on this podcast. <laughs> no, but I, I think that they 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 have been really like saying, "No, oh, but this is this is total crap. I don't like it. I don't like the dices. I don't like the plastic figures. Whatever it is." And I really like to absorb what they're saying. But why don't they like it? And if I can find something that I can change in the game, which I have done, it works very much better. And I think that kind of feedback you don't usually get from adults because they try to filter it. So I think it's been really, really good. Because it's up to... I try to design a game so the players have a lot of joy when they play it. And it's not about prestige or my belief of what the game should be, but it's more about the end consumer, so to say. Okay, so, so now let's look at this more uh, like heavier game, uh, which is Under Blood Red Skies. Yeah. Sorry, reading it upside down. <laughs> um, Hunt for the Sovereign Master. So, so, I mean, the theme there is very dark. Yeah. Um, there's like a tentacle monster here on the cover of the manual. Very scary. The good thing it's daylight now because I don't think I'd be able to walk home. <laughs> um, but so so this is clearly a different different audience, different target. 
Now, what did you put in here in this one that's different for replayability? Well, first of all, Space Jogger is a mass market product and uh, Under Blood Sky is more a specialist game. So, of course, it will be a huge difference between the people who are playing it. This is a game that takes about one and a half, two and a half hours, depending on how many players there are. And that one is like 20 minutes. So this is like a casual game. And it's very hard to compare them, actually, in, in, in that sense, because there is totally different in, uh, in who is going to play it. Uh, when it com comes to replayability, first of all, you have to look at who, who is going to play it. So the, the people that would play under Blood Red Skies, yeah. why would they play it again? Hopefully they really like the mechanics in the game, but most of all, I love themes. Thematic setting. I'm really, really into that. I think my, might be my background as an artist in some way. I love illustrations. I love illustrated works. I like when there's a story into to whatever it is. If it's a movie or the book or a game or whatever it is, um, and I, I really love when they have a game that is really, really saturated with that flavor, and also that the game mechanics and the theme is really, really fitting. As we have tried a few games, Andres, that is have not been 100% <laughs> like mm -hmm. that. <laughs> Absolutely. Like what? Robinson Crusoe. What, what first one. Why didn't you want to replay that one? Because it's, I, I, I felt nothing other than a puzzle. I felt a, a fairly weak puzzle wrapped in what could have been a really... Well, what, what is a beautiful theme, but just non-existent in the actual game? It's a beautiful game. Component-wise, it looks really nice, but what I'm doing here with making these little characters go yeah. around here and trying to research this tech <clears throat> and do this and that doesn't really connect well with me. And, yeah. then, and then at the end of the day, it all just seems like a big puzzle. Yeah. For example, that first scenario where you need a certain number of wood, and if you miss that one day, then you'd almost know by like 13 turns ahead you're going to lose. Yeah. Like, But it's also about, I, I talked to a friend this week, and hopefully he will present his first game in Essen this year. I'm really looking forward to that. And we talked about... If you have a game mechanic and you put on a theme on top of it, and you could put any theme on top of it, is it really interesting in that way? And he said no. Because mm -hmm. he um, he's also a, a writer, so he's trying to make a game uh, fitting into his world. And also that's like, well, you have to find some kind of mechanic that is fitting into your world, else it's no point. Mm -hmm. And if you have a mechanic that is like very general, so to say, it doesn't have to be bad in that way. Uh, but if you can put sci-fi or whatever on top of it, maybe it's not super interesting in that way. I'm not saying it's going to be a bad game, because the mechanic can be beautiful, and you love to play it for the mechanic in the game. But if you can add a theme to it, and it's really, really fitting into it, that's super beautiful. An, an example of, of a mechanic that really, really fits a theme yeah. is a trader mechanic in two games in Battlestar Galactica, board game and in Shadows Over Camelot. Yeah. Now those two themes fit the game. Uh, the mechanic of the trader fits those themes because it's really um, a big part of both of the stories in the King Arthur myth and in Battlestar Galactica. And so so that makes sense to use that mechanic. Yeah. And it works really well. Yeah, Battlestar Galactica is a beautiful game. Mm -hmm. Really love playing in it. And that's a huge replayability at least for mm -hmm. one of my gaming groups. We play quite often. It's it's fun to play. It's more. It's almost like a semi-role-playing game. Mm -hmm. How we play it, so it's really fun. But let me ask you a question about 
story and narrative. Yeah. Now, in Under the Blood Red Sky, I haven't played it yet. Yeah. You've been a bit secretive about it. <laughs> um, but it, it does seem like there's a lot of cards that try to build almost a specific story of like these things are happening in, in the game and with these characters. Yeah. Now, now I, I don't know if it's true in this game, but in, in a lot of story-driven games, it almost feels like after you play it like two or three times, you've played through the story mm -hmm. and then you know what's going to happen. And it's almost like reading a book where you know the ending yeah. in like a thriller or something. Yeah. And you're like, I don't know if I want to read the book anymore. Yeah. Now, how do you avoid that in a game that's very narrative driven? I was actually about to say the Lord of the Rings kind of feels like that. You know, the Lord of the Rings co-op by Rainer Knizia. Like, because it's always the same narrative, the same story, this, and it's very, tries to be very narrative in a way, it really doesn't lean itself to much replayability. You kind of get, you. I mean, it does, it does, and the events will change. And of course, the cards that you're kind of gathering will change. But I mean, the outcome will be virtually the same. We made it through this, we made it through that, and then we threw away the ring. Yeah. But I think it's also up to the players how they believe in it. But what you can do is also, I, I try to make it in this one, that there's some kind of randomness to, to uh, because there are three acts in this game, and there won't be the same kind of um, events every time you play it. And also there's like an end to each act, and they are also randomized. Uh, and also like some games also add expansions for mix, mixing the game experience up, uh, like Eldritch Horror, Arkham Horror, yeah, but that, that's often how narrative-driven games yeah. handle it, is by adding expansions. Yeah. And one thing it, that, that Robinson Crusoe does do is actually um, they give you like a, a kind of a series of different scenarios that you can play through. So it kind of changes the story every time you play. It could do. And, and, and it, the game is... is left open so that you, you could even develop your own scenarios and yeah let's start the game with with the with um everything set up like this and then here's our goal how do we do that so yeah so that's another way of, of trying to deal with that yeah absolutely and also well if you have a fan group that actually can expand on the game without actually adding any new components you just mix up the rules that's really really good i know that we're almost in cruise got much much better with the expansion. We tried it out, was it two weeks ago? It made much more sense. The Voyage of the Beagle. Yeah, much more sense. Yeah. Uh, so and also it's like the target audience. Maybe certain people are not the target for that kind of game either, because it's more of a puzzle. And I know the designer loves to add a lot of components to the game and love the, that kind of setting to it. But maybe it's not fitting for everybody. So on the topic of adding expansions or just trying to extend gameplay, what are your thoughts on... Did you play Risk Legacy at all? Yeah, I started to play it. So, I mean, yeah. you know that, that Risk Legacy you know, has a campaign mode, yeah. 15 games, and at that point the game stops changing. And then you have a set game, and if you want to continue playing it, you can. But then that almost eliminates the, the fun of it. The, the, the no, I don't want to say novelty, because that almost seems rude. But, I mean, the, the difference of, of playing Risk Legacy is you get to change things yeah. every other game. What are your thoughts on these kind of games that have almost a set ending and then have like almost this narrative that ends, you know? Yeah. Like you can't, uh, you can't change things after 15 games or yeah. Seafall as well. Well, it's kind of really interesting because uh, I remember, can you be five players in that game? I remember yeah. Something like that. And then it will be that this group will experience this game and it will be really, really, maybe you're more focused when you play it too. Mm. So I think it can be a huge plus. 
going through that. And adding to that is like there was a discussion on the forum that they talked about when you buy a box, a game that is like $40, whatever it is, and you say, like, oh, it's kind of expensive. I just played once and then it's my shelf. And then someone said, but maybe you should value it as how many movie tickets movie stubs you have bought yeah we just mentioned that in our last episode of our podcast oh you probably had talked about it thank yeah. you thank you for listening yeah <laughs> <laughs> you are welcome <laughs> no but i mean that if you go back to legacy and say that well the game is so and so because uh, so and so much and then say that there are so many players and you play it that many times mm. it has been really really worth it and it doesn't matter if it's just a one-time trial so to say and it ends up in the shelf it's a bit like when you buy a book or whatever it is you have really enjoyed it and i think in the end of it what i love about the game is that you you buy something and you really enjoy it for a while that's the whole main thing hopefully people play games for that experience also maybe not you andres who likes to torment everybody and yourself just ryan (laughs) (laughs) Um, no but i I actually have something to add too um let's say uh, we we played our fifteen game mm-hmm. um, uh, Risk Legacy campaign. Mm-hmm. We finished that. Um, why can't we keep changing it? Well, because it says so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, it's the rules. Damn you! Like, why can't we just keep? Well, by by that by that same logic, why that would why not just pretend it's Christmas and on the very first game open up all the boosters? Because it's the rules. The rules tell us that, like, well, you open this when this happens. You open this when that happens. At 15 games, the game stops changing. Yeah, but I, I, think, I think you're comparing apples to oranges there. I think that um, we had a discussion about why, why, would, why would we want to rush through opening all the expansions in the first three games. No, no, no but I mean, not, not even just that. Like, the rush through is one thing, because you're actually playing the game and doing, and, you know, making outside influences. I'm saying is before the first game even opens... Before we even sit down and play it, why not just open up all the boosters so we can get everything at once? Yeah, it's a, it's the same logic as well. We can still continue changing the board at sixteen. Not at sixteen, logic. it is because it's not. it is because because the game says that, that well you can't open these boosters until this happens, and the game says that you can't change the board after this. You know what the game also says? Never open the last booster. But did you? But that's part of the fun. <laughs> and Do this is the reason it. why this is not a live podcast. <laughs> <laughs> That was part of the fun, and we knew going in we we're going to open that one. So thank you for proving my point. Go fuck yourself. <laughs> Ryan, one under. Two. Yeah, I'm not going to add anything to that. I'm, I'm just observing. <laughs> no, but I, I think, I think it would be fun to keep playing Risk Legacy and then thinking, what could we do to keep like manipulating this world, to keep changing this world? Like, let's say we introduce two new players into it. What, how can we think about... Play a seven-player game. Uh, I, mean, I don't know if I want to do that. But if you, if you have a Why game not? and people start to house-rule it and it's still alive, so to say, I think then they actually have the game developer have made a great game in that way. It's a bit like when you play Battlestar Galactic and they say that, well, if you play seven players, one has to be the silent leader. And people do, no, we're not going to do it that way. We play it a different way. Super. Yeah. Just heighten the value of the experience. But, but I do agree with you, Andres, in, in the sense that I think that you should really look at a game uh, as it's designed first, at least. Yeah. Give, it a, give it a chance, and a chance means play it like at least three times, I would say. And then think about, 
well, in the, the way that our group plays this game, maybe we can kind of tweak it a bit in certain ways. I'm glad that we actually have the sentence, you agree with me on tape. <laughs> well, that'll never be reciprocated, so. <laughs> and in some way, since I'm Swedish, I have to be neutral and I have to say something <laughs> on Andres' side. Because neutral. I'm agreeing too much to be Ryan. <laughs> That's because you're a very intelligent man. I am, it's not proven yet. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> All right, so. <laughs> Go fuck yourself once again, Ryan. <laughs> This concludes the final summoning of the Chasing the Dragon Gaming Podcast. You said that last time. Yeah. You always come back. I'm so happy we're playing Chaos in the Old World after this. Yes. It's going to be mayhem. Or chaos. You know, yeah, you yeah, I mean, yeah. Trademark. Okay, let's, let's move on to a new topic. How do you, as a game designer, balance uh, the theme of your games and the, the mechanics and rules I think it's Thank you for stealing my question. <laughs> that was my question. Yeah. Are you guys done? No, go for it. <laughs> I think it's up to each game actually how how heavy you go on a certain thing. Uh, as I said, I love themes, so I'll probably go more heavy on the theme and maybe try to implement uh, mechanics into the theme. And I know game developers have a theme and they're trying just to add the theme or the flavor into the mechanics. So I think it's just two ways of approaching the game. But can you give a specific example of how you've incorporated a mechanic into the theme? Uh, well, like in Under Blood Red Skies, it's a lot about astrology. Uh, it wasn't that in, to start with. It's most more into spiritism. Uh, I, I changed that a little bit. And in the work placement, uh, you have all the um, zodiac signs. And when you play uh, one of your astrologers, one of the workers on a zodiac, you gain a certain amount of resources. Um, so I, that could have been like any kind of theme to it. But when you place it and how you actually gain the resources and how you use them, is very, very, very in, in, integrated into the uh, to the theme. Yeah, for me, it really is all about how it feels. When you're, for instance, taking an action, yeah. what does it feel like? And I think the idea of taking like worker placement and just saying, you don't say worker, you say astrologer. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that just shows that you're really thinking, how do I incorporate this mechanic into the theme? Yeah. And, and so I'll be <clears throat> thinking about that when I'm moving this astrologer now and, you know, what is happening in the game. It's the theme that's happening. Yeah. Well, I see it also that the test groups I have are quite diverse. Some people are really uh, casual gamers. Some are really, how to say, friendly gamers. They are there just to have a good time. Some are really power players. Uh, and I try to address each group to see what kind of experience they are after. And uh, especially with those who are really only into the mechanic of the game, just trying to win, is there a possibility that I can actually get them to feel the theme also into it. It's like a challenge. So they're not just seeing the math behind the game. Mm -hmm. uh, that's like, a, I think it's really good. If, if, if you're designing games, just trying to have as many diverse game gaming groups that are within your target mm -hmm. audience. I think that's the best, best way to handle the game and to test to see that 
what you are trying to tell through your game or the experience you're trying to give your your uh, players. Okay, Chris, they're speaking about the game development and design again. You've already mentioned a little bit about some of your playtesting, how you got different feedback from different kids. How much how much playtesting do you do per game? Have you had, like, let's say, a, a six-month development period and then, like, this much playtesting? Do you have, like, an idea of, like, I want to get at least this many games before I think it's good? Or do you just hammer out as much playtesting as you can at one day? And then until you feel like you've been... You whittled down to the right sharp edge of whatever game you want. Yeah, I think it's also different based on the game we are doing. Um, like with Space Yogurt, I play tested it with my family to start with uh, until I gotten like, oh, this is the mechanics I want to have, and it's like start to fit with the theme. And then I try to find gaming groups uh, to play test with. Um, and then I see how they react to it. Then you go back to the drawing table and trying to figure out if well, this was working, this was not working, and then you continue that way. Because I, I, um, I think you can play tests forever if you want to. There's always something you can improve. But at a certain point, you have to say that uh, I think I've reached a level where I can actually present this to a publisher. And then after, because I, I believe in... Um, that when you have play tested and you have presented it to a publisher, or if you're doing it self-publishing, whatever you're doing, um, you have to listen to. If you do self-publishing and you sell the game to start with, and you get a certain feedback, you have to listen to that. Or if you go to a publisher and they say that maybe you should try this out, you should really do it and think about it mm. because you have to be open to new ideas. Because, uh, like in the end product or uh, the end user, they have certain opinion in general you have to listen to that because that they are the one who is going to play the game and enjoy it and publisher have a lot of knowledge so you should listen to them too in in the same way that you have to still believe in what your your game is about so you can't just sell out your uh what you're trying to tell with the game (laughs) yeah it's probably not always easy to take that criticism in because maybe you're really excited about something yeah the same thing in film when you're editing. Yeah. Sometimes um, a good advice is to say, whatever your favorite shot is, your very favorite shot out of all the shots, <clears throat> cut that out of your film. Yeah. You know, sometimes you have to do that. Yeah, kill your darlings. Yeah. 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 yeah, sometimes it's really necessary. And it is hard, actually, because maybe you have worked on something for a very long time, maybe years, and someone says, well, well this is going in the wrong direction. You have to do it that way. And it's, But you have probably have to do it. <laughs> So it's always a balance that you have you have an idea and you really believe into it and you're very passionate about a certain thing, but then you get ideas from outside and they say that maybe you should change it in that direction and it's always up to you how you how you view those criticism or reviews or whatever it is. But I think you still have to focus on who you're going to tell it to. So uh, then after you feel like you have your game, your product is done, yeah. What's your next step? Well, the next step will be either you go self-publishing, that already you have found a distribution route or whatever it is, or you go to a publisher, you address a publisher. Uh, one good thing would be go to uh, some of the main events like Essen or Gencon or someplace like that. You, you contact the publishers in advance, try to set up a meeting, and you go there and pitch your game, and hopefully they, they like it. And they take your prototype or a rule book or whatever it is, and then 
We're in the hands of the gods. <laughs> how's, how's that been going for you? It's gone really well, yeah. And it's it can be a long process. You have to be willing to understand that there, there are a lot of uh, steps a company have to go through to evaluate, evaluate your game before they decide what to do. And in most cases, they also want you to change a few things and try new game rules out or a new design or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. But eventually, in the end, you have to focus on your what the game will eventually show up. And most of the times, I think, they going through those presses. I've seen friends now who made a game and going through uh, that publisher have gone, done the game a huge benefit. The game has gotten so much better. It's like a super game now. Is that Campbell's Cascade? Yeah. Mm. Awesome game. Mm. It, it must be difficult when you're so close to the game if you designed it, and also even your playtesters yeah. who played it many, many times. Yeah. Um, that you get so close to it that you maybe assume too much. And that's why you need the publishers who has this kind of distance yeah. and they can see things from a, a, a wider perspective. Yeah, and also they see another view also that because it has to be manufactured, it has to be sold. Mm-hmm. So they probably have the expertise or they, they will have the expertise to see it from a marketing standpoint too. So then if the publisher comes back to you tomorrow, writes back to you tomorrow and says, we really love Space Yogurt, but we really want to know if it'll be okay if we remove the figures and put cardboard cutouts and we make it My Little Pony. That would be kind of tough, actually. But if they have a really, really good reason, it's all about, about that. But I still have to believe in what, what I'm doing. And I, I, we have had a discussion about exchanging uh, the plastic figures for paper stand-ups, etc. <laughs> but they are huge part of the game so but I think you have to you have to be willing to compromise but you have to also be viewing it in what you're compromising about because it's still your game it's still your vision mm. so it's, I think it's a balance you, you can't say that like there has to be a certain rule I will always do this kind of way because every situation every game is different mm. Very bland answer, sorry. Yes, it is. <laughs> you heard it here. My Little Space Pony Yogurt, coming out soon. It's trademarked <laughs> by Andres. Space Pony Yogurt. <laughs> My Little Space how about, how about just call it Pony Yogurt? <laughs> In space. In space. Thank you, guys. I'm so happy. <laughs> so, uh, Christer, thank you for joining us on Facing the Dragon Gaming Podcast. Been great. Chasing the pony dragon <laughs> in space. In space, yeah. <laughs> Thank you for having me. That's been great. As always with you guys. And now we are off to play Chaos in the Old World. <laughs> so goodbye. <laughs>